And turn to Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 through chapter 3, verse 13. Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 through 3, 13. As we have been talking in previous weeks about when two-ness becomes oneness, based off of Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 24, that a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That they are no longer two, but they are now one. Well, what do you do when the one becomes two? And it indeed does happen. And that's what we're going to talk about today. You don't have to go very far in the Bible to find out what happens when the oneness that God has made becomes two. And it's right here in the beginning. I know we've been reading a lot out of Genesis, but this is so foundational to the family. I'm persuaded, actually, uh, just how relevant the story of the garden is to every problem that we face. I think, in fact, just about every story in the Bible and every problem that we face can be explained through the lens of what we find in the story of the Garden of Eden. But this morning's statement is this, oneness becomes two-ness when sin enters the relationship. Oneness becomes two-ness when sin enters the relationship. Picking up in verse 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten of the tree which I have commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So, we didn't get really far into the story of oneness. Uh, two verses. Before two-ness entered the relationship. Oneness is a complicated thing. Oneness is when two people, two parties, come together, a man and a woman, join together in the sacred and holy relationship of marriage that God has designed from the beginning so that they are no longer two, but one. We find that right here in the text of Scripture. And in order to be one, you forsake being two. But what happens when sin enters any relationship? Well, when sin enters a oneness relationship in marriage... Tunis enters. Let's first begin talking about this, is that the perfect marriage, it's principle number one, the perfect marriage God designed was one of complete innocence and total vulnerability, perfect oneness. The perfect marriage God designed was one of complete innocence and total vulnerability, perfect oneness. Let's look together in verse number 25, and it says, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. As mentioned at the very first two messages, I mentioned this both in the first two messages, is the concept of being naked and unashamed. In a Middle Eastern context of which this Bible was written, it sounds embarrassing today that we could be naked and unashamed. To them in the ancient world, especially in the Middle East, some of the most clothed people in the world, it would have been unthinkable that people could be naked and unashamed. But this is symbolic of the innocence of their relationship. It's symbolic of the innocence of their relationship. So this idea of nakedness throughout the Bible is connected with shame. It's connected with shame. So what this tells us is the fact that his man and, the man and his wife were naked and unashamed is that they had this shared vulnerability and this trust with each other. In fact, because they were naked and unashamed, they had no shame, number one. But also, not only no shame, I mean, when you're naked, there's no hiding either. There was no sense that Adam felt like he needed to, you know, kind of turn in a certain angle so Eve doesn't see his figure or Eve the same way. No, naked and unashamed. Nothing is going through their minds that, in any way do I need to hide myself because I'm embarrassed of who I am or I'm ashamed of who I am. Which leads to the second thing. Not only there was there no shame, but there's no hiding. 
There's no hiding in the relationship either. At this point, Adam's not hiding from Eve. Eve's not hiding from Adam. Nobody's hiding from God. Nobody's hiding from children because children aren't in the picture. There's no shame. And there also, there is no hiding. And because there's no shame and no hiding, there's no judgment. There's no judgment at all. Now, we all know that we live in a world that makes judgments and assessments of people. Um, in fact, we do that with our own families and stuff like that. In fact, um, there are certain people in my life that I receive judgments from just because of who they are in my life, and they're allowed to judge me if they want to. For instance, uh, when I visit uh, my sweet and precious one-of-a-kind grandmother, my, just the jewel of my life today, I'm so blessed to have her. But when I see her and, and I embrace her, occasionally she'll, when she hugs me, she'll, she'll reach her hand over on my side and she'll kind of push on it a little bit and she'll be like, hey, what's, what's this right here? Like what? Like, Nana. Okay, I know I need to lose a little weight. Yeah, right? But she's my grandmother. She can say whatever she wants to say, right? And I love her and I know she loves me. But in this first, there's no judging another person in this open relationship of no shame, no hiding, no judgment. It is totally vulnerable, totally naked, and no shame, fear, judgment, any of that stuff. This is how God has designed marriage to work. Now, we all know that this is not exactly how it works, right? Because you can feel shame in marriage. You can hide in marriage. You can experience judgment in marriage. Now, this is not God's design, but nonetheless, we know that this can happen. Which brings me to the second principle. Is this the perfectly designed oneness that God created in Eden? was shattered into tunis when they disobeyed God. The perfectly designed oneness <coughs> was shattered into tunis when they disobeyed God. I want you to see what happened in the relationship when sin enters. First, sin brought awareness. Sin brought awareness. Look in verse number seven. It will be on the screen. This is after Eve and Adam have both taken the apple or the piece of fruit, whatever it was. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Sin brought awareness. There is this newfound knowledge that they have. Suddenly there is this self-awareness that they possess and also an awareness of someone else. Adam is now aware of Eve's nakedness and her shame. And Eve is now aware of Adam's nakedness and his shame. And they're both very personally aware of their own nakedness and their own shame. Their eyes have been opened that there is an awareness in the relationship that has taken place. So now, in marriage, we talk about 
this. Like, for instance, we talk about the honeymoon season. What is the honeymoon season? Well, we know what a honeymoon is. You know, you go off after marriage and you spend a few weeks together just all alone somewhere typically. You go to the beach or you go to the mountains or you go somewhere you've never been before. And you go and you have a special time of creating oneness and starting out the relationship right. And then you come back and everything is so happy and bright, or at least it's supposed to be. And I, I remember when we went on our honeymoon, we went to Aruba. And we, uh, a friend of ours uh, helped us pull that off, and we went to Aruba. This was back in 2005. I remember sitting in the airport um, to, to fly south. I think we flew out of Miami, if I'm remembering correctly. We got down to Miami, but we were sitting in Miami in, the, in one of the waiting areas, to, waiting to get on the plane, and of course, I'm holding her real tight, and we're sitting real close, and a guy sitting next to us, he goes, wow, he said, well, you all are headed to your honeymoon, aren't you? And I said, gosh, what gave it away? He said, well, let's just say those rings are really shiny. <laughs> But we expect certain behaviors from people on their honeymoon. There's a closeness. There is a innocence about an early relationship and marriage. And then, but then something happens, right? <laughs> Y'all, no response. No, nothing happened, preacher. It must have happened in your relationship, but not mine, <laughs> right? But something happens when you, when you get into the normal grind of life, Right? The, the shine on those rings, right, starts to dull a little bit. And then, you know, what turned out as a, everything was all wonderful and, oh, he's just so the most wonderful thing ever. Now he's leaving his drawers on the floor and you're pointing at him and saying WWJD and all this stuff. And it's, what happened? Well, we know what happened. There is an awareness that comes into the relationship where you realize, wow, I thought I married Prince Charming. And instead, I just married him. Or I thought I married Miss Wonderful, and instead, I just married her. And I'm not saying you don't love him anymore, but there is an awareness of realizing the honeymoon has ended and realizes, realizing, wow, I'm married to a, a sinner. And they are too. They're married to a center too. The honeymoon period, it, it fades. And this is arguably the most drastic ending of a honeymoon period ever was the very first one when everything was wonderful and it went from, wow, I love you and this is awesome to, girl, put some clothes on. <laughs> like it ended so drastic. Like how did it, how did it happen? So sin brought awareness. Also, awareness brought shame. Awareness brought shame. Notice in the scripture when it says also in verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is intentional on their part to cover their shame. Not only are they aware of now their deficiencies, not only are they aware of their sin, they're embarrassed of it. 
They're ashamed of it. Right? Going back to an early relationship. Perhaps you remember when you were dating. You go out of your way to make sure that any real deficiency you have is hidden. Like, that's when you go and you brush your teeth for like 15 minutes just to make sure you don't have bad breath on your date, right? Or you go and you spend all this time getting ready so everything is perfect. But then over time, when you're married, you realize it's not really realistic to kind of keep that up, right? There is an awareness now that we have with each other. The longer you're married, the more aware of your spouse's deficiencies you become. And not only awareness, the more shame that someone can feel, the more their deficiencies are known. They knew their deficiencies, so they've tried to cover them. Also, not only awareness brought shame, but shame brought guilt. Shame brought guilt. Look in verse number 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees. Not only is there now awareness, hey, my spouse is not perfect. There's also shame. Ooh, I'm not perfect either, and I don't know if I want my spouse to know this about me. Now there's also guilt. Not just shame, but, but guilt that now, when they even hear the sound of God coming, it's like a reminder of what they've lost. I had a friend tell me years ago, he told me, he said, Matt, he said, the reason I don't go to church is because I feel so guilty. And I said, oh my gosh. I said, are people making you, are they people saying things inappropriate to you or something like that? He said, well, no. He said, I, I don't know. I just feel guilty when I come into church. And I think in parsing that out, and he and I had grown up together in church, but I think in parsing that out, I think what he was thinking is that He'd been out of church and he'd been through some hard times in his life, marriage and all these things. And coming back to church was just kind of like a reminder of everything that he'd lost. And he said, when I came here, I just felt guilty. He said, nobody made me feel guilty. I just felt guilty. This is what sin does, right? Sin not only brings awareness and shame, but it brings guilt. It name calls says look at you you used to be something but look at you now guilt in a relationship with each other thinking about what used to be but now look, look at what it is <clears throat> so shame brought guilt but also guilt brought hiding notice it says and the man and his wife this is verse 8 hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So not only are they hiding from God, they're hiding from each other. By the way, you can see this progression as oneness becomes two-ness in any marriage. That 
you realize, okay, I'm not married to Mr. Wonderful and Mrs. Wonderful. You know what? I'm embarrassed that I'm not everything that I promised them I would be. Feeling shame, and then you feel guilt, and then there comes the hiding from each other. Hiding from each other. You know what? One of the things is that marital counselors talk about a lot that almost in every catastrophic marriage crisis, it comes down to hiding. Hiding from each other, hiding information, hiding whether it be for shame or because there's a deficiency in the relationship and now someone's pursuing other things. Guilt brings hiding. They had this open vulnerability, but now it's gone. Now they're hiding from each other. Also, hiding brings fear. Because when you're hiding, you're always afraid that you're going to be found out, right? In verse number 10, it says, when Adam speaks to the Lord, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. I was afraid. This perfect one relationship of marriage descended into chaos so fast. It was beautiful, and then there was an awareness, and then shame, guilt, hiding, and now fear. Oh, gosh. What if God finds me and sees me as I am? What if my wife finds out what I've been doing? What if my husband finds out what I've been doing? What if they find out how I really think? Hiding is brought about by fear. Or, excuse me, fear is brought about by hiding. Also, another thing that we see as the oneness is fractured into two-ness is not only that hiding brought fear, but fear brought half-truths. Fear brings half-truths. Now, I'm actually learning this in my parenting is that is actually just occurred to me here recently is that when I confront my children, all of them from 16 down to 2, is they have a grand tendency to not give me a straight answer when they're in trouble. I have to like back them into a corner to get the truth out of them. In fact, my youngest daughter, I was confronting her probably three weeks ago, and she actually said this line to me. She said, Dad, how about I just tell you the truth? How about it? As if to say, Dad, let's, let me spare you all this work. I'm just going to tell you the truth this time. But now here's the thing. I don't have bad kids. I have good kids. Um, and it used to bother me that they tried to weasel out of responsibility. And then I read Genesis, a new and a fresh here this past year. And I was thinking, why am I expecting them to be any different than Adam and Eve? If Adam and Eve could not give God a straight answer, why do I expect my children are just going to all of a sudden give me a straight answer and be like little George Washington's, Father, I cannot tell a lie. I cut down the cherry tree. That's not reasonable. If Adam and Eve couldn't give a straight answer, 
We're not going to be able to give a straight answer. Why? Because fear brings half-truths. Notice what it says. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Now, is that the full truth? Well, yes and no, right? It is true that he was naked and he hid himself, but the question was, have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat? And this is why he was running. Also, have truths brought excuses and abdication of responsibility. So not only is there a, when you get in trouble, you don't exactly want to tell the truth, There are excuses and abdication of responsibility. Listen to 11 through 13. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you? The man said, the woman. I love that. If you just froze it right there. The man said, the woman. Then look, and what does the woman say? And the woman said, the serpent. Immediately, it's their fault. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Meaning, I wouldn't have done this had it not been for that woman. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Meaning, I wouldn't have done this had it not been for that snake. What has happened here? Half-truths have brought excuses an abdication of responsibility. This is the trajectory downward of every crash from oneness into twoness in every marriage that has ever been, which sin ultimately brings twoness. Sin ultimately brings twoness. When sin enters the relationship, it brings awareness. They're not all that I thought they were, and I'm not all that I thought I was. It brings shame, then guilt, then hiding, then fear, then half-truths, then abdication of responsibility, and now all of a sudden it brings twoness. That's how twoness enters any relationship. And I can tell you, any marital difficulty you have ever faced, I have ever faced, you can trace it back to sin either in one party or both parties entering into the relationship. Which brings me to the final thing. Let's end on some much better news. Is only sacrifice can stop Tunis in its tracks. Gary Ford is a member of our church. He attends a second service. He and his wife, Miss Linda, uh, she works on our media team, does a wonderful job. But Gary spoke to me Wednesday night. He said, listen, uh, Linda and I have been talking. What if Eve would have eaten the fruit? And then Adam just said, no, I don't want any. What would have happened? I was like, man. Gary, that's a great question. And uh, he said, yeah, I was trying to think, like, what, what would that mean? I mean, because Eve took of the fruit first, 
she ate, and then she gave some to her husband, and then he ate. So what would have happened if Eve would have eaten, and Eve brought sin into the relationship, and then Adam said, no, put it back on the tree. God said, no, I'm not going to eat it. What would have happened? Well, that was a great question by Gary, and it got wheels turning in my head of like, how do I answer that? Like, what is the answer? And it turns out that Jewish rabbis have long had an answer to this question. And I actually found this in the writings of St. Augustine. It has long been believed that Adam had two options once Eve ate the fruit. Judge her or join her. It has long been believed that Adam had two options. Okay, Eve has taken the fruit off the tree, all right? She has eaten. Adam is right there. He sees what's going on, which, by the way, this is interesting. The Bible throughout the Scripture says Eve was deceived. It never says Adam was deceived. That's a whole different kind of sin. Adam it was blatant disobedience. Adam knew, and he ate anyway. But anyway, it has long been believed that Adam had two options. So let's say, what do you do when you're married to someone and somebody pulls the fruit off the tree? And now you have a crisis in the relationship. And yeah, I understand. By the way, I understand. There is no situation that is all one-sided. Marital problems are never 50-50. Sometimes they're 90-10. Maybe they mean 99-1. Maybe they're 60-40. Maybe they're 51-49. We know that. How can you put numbers on them anyway? But we do understand that when it comes to breaking offenses in marriage, because we all understand, hey, look, nobody's perfect. But when we're talking about decisions in the marriage and the relationship that actually break the marriage down from oneness into twoness, serious offenses. We do understand that sometimes that is not always committed by two people. Sometimes the breaking offense, in fact, probably more often than not, the breaking offense is committed by one party, not two. Sometimes it's two, sometimes it's one. But what do you do in a relationship where you have this sacred union and then somebody pulls piece of fruit off the forbidden tree well the rabbi said you've got one of two options you can judge them Adam could have looked at Eve and said how could you I told you not to do that can't you listen to me don't you learn woman we've been over this look at you you could judge them or you could join them that's what Adam did. It was, well, I don't want to judge her, and I love her. You know what? Give me that fruit. But you can't do that either. You see, judging her would have betrayed his wife, but joining her betrayed God's word. You see the conundrum that Adam was in once Eve has brought destruction into their relationship? He can either 
judge her and cast her out, or he can join her in her folly and pour just as much destruction into the relationship as Eve has. But St. Augustine points this out. There's a third option. The only thing which stops Tunis is what Adam failed to do, which is humbly confront her, but offer himself as a sacrifice in her place. How do you prevent oneness from splintering forever into Tunis? Somebody sacrificially says, I'm going to take the blow for this instead. You see, Adam didn't do this. Once Eve took of the fruit, what Adam could have done is he could have looked at her and said, Eve, I love you, but this is not right. We cannot do this. We cannot do this together. But I love you. And then Adam could have turned to God and said, God, Father, I know what she's done is not right. But I love this woman. And even though she is in shame, I want her shame to fall on me. You can take me instead. So, well, that didn't happen. Well, it didn't happen in that garden. But it happened in a different one. See, Adam did not do this, but Jesus did. He literally took our shame and was nailed naked to a tree. Jesus did what Adam didn't do. Adam joined his wife in her sin, and thus the death spiral began in man. Jesus joined us even though we were sinners. But he never compromised the word of God. But he also never compromised or diminished his love and faithfulness towards us. And it was so much so demonstrated that he went all the way to the cross to die for you and me, bearing our shame. No wonder Paul says in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Friends, we live in a fallen world. There is going to be two-ness that tries to emerge in every marriage relationship. I'm the happiest married person that I've ever heard of. And it would be foolish for me to think that two-ness will never enter my relationship with Andrea. Of course it will. Of course it does. Of course it has. Two-ness happens when sin comes into the relationship. And I want to encourage you today that when sin enters your marriage, when somebody drops the ball, 
When someone does something destructive like taking forbidden fruit, breaking sacred trust, all of these things, you have an opportunity and a decision to make. You can judge them or you can join them. You can judge them and say, how could you? What's wrong with you? Look at you. You're just terrible. I can't believe I have to deal with this. I'm married to this. Oh, my goodness. And point out and shame them everything that is wrong with them. Or you can just go the other way and just say, well, listen, nobody's perfect, and I've got my stuff too. I don't really care. And dishonor God's word. There is an option in the middle. And it's Jesus, one that takes seriously the things of God, but never compromises the love that you have for the person in your oneness relationship. This is what Christ has done for us. You think about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for Jesus. And Lord, you are the perfect spouse to your church. And Lord, as I think about my life and my marriage, Lord, I pray you would help me to be more like Jesus. Lord, don't let me be a Pharisee. Don't let me be just a finger-pointing, judgmental, get your act together, what's wrong with you, we've waited for so long. Oh, prevent me from being that. But Lord, prevent me also from joining sin and sin. Lord, help me be willing to pay the price to say, Lord, this is what your word says. But I love you and I'm not going to stop loving you. That's a hard place to stand for a spouse. That's a hard place to stand for a parent. That's a hard place to stand for any significant relationship is when somebody is committing a horrible offense and what do you do Lord help us to stand there to not compromise your word but to love them suffer with them bearing their shame no matter what it costs us because this is what you have done for us standing in that place we're never alone Lord because it's where you stood and it's where you stand for it's in the name of Jesus I pray amen and amen